My name is Jane Harbury, and you're listening to Talking Blues. Let's go back to the very beginning. Tell me where you're from. I'm from a place called Liphook in Hampshire in the UK. Whereabouts is that? It's, well, it's on the A3, or it was on the A3 until there was a ring road put in, but it's um, between Guildford and Portsmouth. So Guildford is in Surrey and Portsmouth is in Hampshire. And what was it like growing up there? Well, I didn't actually grow up there. We, we moved there when um, I was probably... I, I think late teens, and um, we moved to a house from London. Um, I, I'm going to tell you a quick story of how how we moved, why okay. we moved. All right. uh, we were we were brought up by my father's mother and my father, um, and there were three of us who who were brought up as uh, together, and we were all in boarding school from the time we were eight, because that's what most people did certainly people that, that we knew. Right. And we always had an au pair girl with my, my grandmother to help my grandmother because she had never basically looked after her own kids because she grew up, they grew up in, in big houses with people to take care of them. So gra- my granny uh, brought us up with my father and an au pair girl. Um, so boarding school was sort of an op- almost no option. It really was something we had to do. My sister was 11 months old when my grandmother took us on. So we moved a few times, that, this particular family unit, and then my father met and subsequently married a woman named Joyce Owen. And they wanted to move from London um, and have a house rather than a big flat. And so we moved down to Liphook. And Liphook was a very magical place for me. It was... It, it was where I made some of the, the best contacts I've ever had, friends, that, that re- maintain today. In fact, I went back to the UK in September for the reunion of, um, of this particular group of friends. We bought a double-decker bus back in 1966, I think it was, and uh, in 1949 Leyland, and the guys reconditioned totally built rebuilt the inside the engine was pretty good the bus had a half a million miles on it um and and we were all in the pub one night that we used to hang out at and for total disclosure we were a group of people who were young conservatives don't hold that against me um the conservative part was not that proactive the the young have fun and and make friends was so one night we're in the pub and Bert Oram, the, the owner of the Deer's Hut, he would let us stay after he'd called time and everybody, all, the, all the other people would leave and he'd lock the door and we'd hang out and have a drink or two. And one night they were talking about the bus and he said, uh, I bet you a pint that you can't take the bus around the world. So for a pint, they'd do almost anything. So these nine guys started rebuilding. They were rebuilding the inside of the bus and uh, they built it, nine of them went on the road. So they left in 1969, and it had nine bunks upstairs, and the other girl and I, who we all used to hang out together, she and I built, uh, made gingham curtains, and, and we told the guys who were making them red and white gingham curtains, and they went, we're guys, we don't do gingham. <laughs> and we said, too bad, you got them. And when I went back, the gingham curtains are still there 50 years later. 
Anyway, so then they set off in 69, and they shipped the bus over to France, and then they drove all the way through Europe to Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkey, um, I think India, and then, uh, yes, India, and then to Australia. They shipped it over, and then they shipped it back to, or shipped it to the U.S. back in 1970. Two maybe, and and they they travel around the world. This is not an inexpensive thing to do. Well, it wasn't expensive. It it, it wasn't cheap, but it was also okay because the uh, tr- British Trade Commission um, gave them some goods to try and sell for the for around the world. So everywhere they went, they'd set up with the bus, and and then they'd go to malls. And there were three group musical groups within the nine guys. So there was a, a sort of a folky traditional, and there was more rocky, and and uh, there was Peter, Paul, and Mary's brother, because Peter and Paul were real guys, and Mary's brother was Richard. So it was Peter, Paul, and Mary, brother. Right. And so they'd play in malls, and they'd get money, and they'd buy enough gas to to get them to the next place. And they had taken a lot of rations, dried food and all that stuff. And then the British Trade Commission gave them stuff to try and sell. Um, But that was not the big success that they thought maybe because the sausages that the Brits gave them to sell were curved and the barbecues were straight. So it kind of was a disaster every time they'd try and barbecue sausages. But anyway, they traveled around and they, they did this for two and a half years. And then there was a reunion this September, 2019. That's why I saw the picture of buses. That's correct. On your yes. Facebook page. Yes. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> so that's the start of my, <laughs> my, my life before I came to Canada. Was it difficult to move out of London to the country at, at being uh, a teenager? Did well, you... no, actually, um, because we'd sort of, I wouldn't say nomadic because we'd always had a house, but, but we'd moved a lot because okay. of my father with work and stuff, I, I suppose. And you know, it's too bad that you don't speak more about why when, right. you're, when you're younger, because they're gone, obviously. But no, for me it wasn't, because I, I also was away from home most of the time anyway, because I was a school matron, um, and I had little boys between the ages of seven and 13 who were my responsibility when I was still only four or five years older than they, right. which is crazy when you think about it. <laughs> Um, so I was I was used to being away. No, it wasn't difficult. I guess I I just like okay the next step. You know. Right. What when did music come into your life? Music came into my life. Um, my first two crushes were Troy Donahue and Dirk Bogart. I did not at the time even think about sexuality. It was just I thought they were wonderful. I was about thirteen, fourteen, and they were both gay, which is unfortunate, but. But for me, it was unfortunate. <laughs> uh, anyway, so so, so that, that didn't was music. Work out. <laughs> and then I then we went. My dad always had music. We we were brought up on on Beethoven, and Verdi, and um, Glenn Miller band. So, so what for me at that time? Right. I, I like musicals a lot though. And and every year at the end of school term, my my father would pick me up from boarding school. And before the school report came in, he'd take me out to dinner in London and uh, and a musical. And then the report came in, and I bet he regretted it. <laughs> uh, what made you come to Canada? How did you wind up coming to Canada? Back to the young conservatives. Um, I I was a debater in our in our group, and um, 
my partner, my, my debating partner was a girl named Janice Hunt. And Janice had moved to San Diego. I don't know, I can't remember why. Um, and, she, and one night we were, we'd been debating in a pub and afterwards we're sitting talking and she said, you should come to San Diego. There's 11 guys for every girl, is what she said. Well, of course, it's a naval town, right? right. So there were a lot of, a lot of guys. <laughs> So I, I said, oh, okay. Uh, with no, the, there was no plan. There's never been a plan. That's that's the sad, amazing thing about right. my life. Is it sad though? I don't, I don't know if it's sad. Well, only sad in that that I got a good education and basically I did whatever I wanted. You know what I mean? <laughs> so when I was 15, my father was called to my headmistress, and and, and she said to my father. Mr. Harbury, this is a waste of our time and your money. We suggest that Jane go out and do something other than schooling, because if I like the subject, I get ninety nine hundred percent. If I didn't, I'd get zero, one, two, three. You know. Right. So, so I understood that. So th- that that was sort of why I was pretty flexible. But and and that's why I thought. Well, why not San Diego? Anyway, I went, and then everybody was saying it's going to be easier to come to Canada to go to Canada. And um, so I said, okay. So I went to Canada House in London, in I think it's in Piccadilly. Uh, Trafalgar Square. Trafalgar Square. Yeah. And um, the guys asked me, oh, I had also been doing theater for a lot of years. I had been acting. Um, and and the, the agent asked me what I did. And I said, well, I'm a school matron and I act. And he said, well, we don't have much call for school matrons. We'll put you down as file clerk. So that's what I was labeled as. And of course, they wanted British people in those days. You know, it was easy to come. So my father was with Sun Life of Canada mm-hmm. in London. A friend of his had emigrated to Toronto, and a guy named Jack Peacock. And um, my, my father told him I was coming to Toronto. The reason I came to Toronto is because when we were talking, my friends and I, and, and somebody said, where are you going? I said, I don't know. I'm, Canada so we got a map and I closed my eyes and put a pin and it was Hamilton and everybody said oh don't go to Hamilton so you better go to Toronto it's bigger <laughs> so this you have to understand this was 60 66 right so I came to Canada but Jack Peacock asked me to go up to his house in Willowdale with his family and he said, so what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. I, I just got here. And he said, well, you have to have a plan. Come down to Sun Life on Tuesday, and I'll introduce you to the employment officer. So this file clerk thing came back to haunt me because I'm not good with math at all, at all, at all. Anyway, I went back down. To, I went to Sun Life on Tuesday. It was on University Avenue, and I, oh, I looked so British and so, so demure, I think. And... Um, and I, and I went in and met the assistant to, to Mr. Perkis, who was the employment officer. And I had to do, I had to fill in tests. I had to write tests to see if I was worthy of being a whatever. Right. So, of course, because of my father and Jack Peacock, they gave me a job as a file clerk. And um, that was not successful, but they didn't let me go. I learned how to do switchboard. And I learned how to, I got my first certificate in Xerox, learning how to change a cartridge. So I actually got a, a certificate, right. piece of paper with signature, congratulations. 
Um, but the but the woman who had been doing switchboard for years uh, got sick and left, always leaving. And I went to my boss and I said, um, I don't know if you've decided who's... I wasn't being rude. I don't know if you've decided who's going to get the job as switchboard because I'd like it. And if I don't get it, I think I'll probably leave. So I got it. And it was great because nobody came to visit you other than to come and bring you a paycheck every two weeks, whatever. And it was 160 extensions and 15 incoming lines. And you had the plugs, like one in and one in. And I loved it. And then I started a drama club within Sun Life and I thought I was going to do The Importance of Being Earnest, but I didn't have the greatest cast. Um, And so I ended up doing a one-act Jewish play of, of these Jewish people in the Bronx, which... It was only because it was like a few people and I thought I could handle that. <laughs> so I did it at Sun Life and I was given the, the, the cafe, cafeteria and the handyman was helped me build a stage and, and we did it. And then, they, then we put on the play and everybody came. They had to, right? There was no excuse. <laughs> 11 stories of Sun Life people. And, and I got a bunch of gladioli and they took my picture and it was in the Sun Life of Canada newsletter. My father, I think, freaked out a little bit. And he saw me there with gladioli. So that was, I left after two and a half years. And I left for no particular reason other than I couldn't cope with it, really. Did you, did you think acting was a possibility? Oh, yeah, it was. And I did do it. And I did some provincial theatre. I, um, I did The Citadel in Edmonton. And we did a, we did a version of There's a Girl in My Soup, mm-hmm. which was a fabulous play. And Wendy Thatcher was the juvenile lead, and she she and I shared a flat in in Edmonton, and uh, that was fantastic. And that was, we I think we re- we rehearsed like six, three four weeks, and then we played for two and a half weeks or three weeks, and then I came back, and that would have that would have been in 1969, and when I came back, well maybe 68. And I, I started a boutique with a friend, and it was called Jane and I, and it, he put up the money, and, and I had to be in the store. And uh, it, was all, it was all dolly clothes, boutique right. 60s clothes. And it was right next to Hercules, uh, Hercules Army and Navy store. So on Young Street. Yeah, yeah. On, the, on the east side. And I did that. And then I also... So I was doing the, the acting on occasion... And then I was also a second matron at the National Ballet Junior School. I wasn't full-time. I, I was fill-in. Right. And one night... Oh, can I go back? Of course. Okay, so in 1966, some of the girls at Sun Life said to me on a Friday, or on a Thursday or Friday, and they said, we're going to this pl- uh, club, and would you like to come with us on Friday? So I said, that would be lovely. And so we met. It was in November. And Yorkville was not built up. And Yorkville was was colder than I have ever experienced in November. Anywhere, anytime. I came from England. Right. And um, this, this was 1966, November. And we went to the, this place and we walked downstairs into this basement and we asked to, to buy tickets, and the and the person at the door said, "This show sold out. Uh, the second show is sold out, but you could come back and and wait for the midnight show if you'd like." This is for real. So 
there was a guy in England, a jazz player called Terry Lightfoot. And so I thought Gordon Lightfoot was probably related somehow. Anyway, we, we, we paid our whatever it was, $2, $3, and got in at around 11.30 at night or whatever. And we were, it was smoky and it was hot and, and it was long and narrow and the, they, it had portholes, real brass portholes, with green gel behind them and a, and a light bulb to re- represent the ocean. Right. And we were seated at the back and then we had to, adding insult to injury, we had to buy something to drink. And of course, it was a coffee house. It was no license. There was no alcohol. So then this voice came on the PA, and it was Bernie Fiedler, and and it was good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the riverboat. Would you please give a more warm riverboat welcome to Good and Lightfoot? And out came Red Shea, and uh, John Stockfish, and Gordon. And that's where my magic started musically. That was my that was my epiphany musically here. But then I got on with my life and did the sunlight. So, explain that that epiphany. Tell epiphany. me what happened, or how you it, felt. Magic happened. Magic. I didn't know. I didn't know how great songwriters could be and how impactful. It could be. This was the third show of the night, and Gordon and the boys were like fresh as anything. And the audience was all new. They turned the house every, every show, and they were all in awe. And I found, I think I found what I wanted to do. What was Gordon's career like at that point? Was he, had he done a record? Has he, was he yes. known? Yes. Uh, yeah. He, I think his first record came out in about 64, 65. Okay. So, maybe even a bit earlier. But he was obviously a star here. But he hadn't elevated. The Joni and the Neils had... had. I don't know if they had finished playing the riverboat in 1966, but I never went back to the riverboat until 1969. Even though it was an epiphany. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't have time. I was acting. Yeah, I right. was playing at the... doing the National Ballet Junior Girls, and I was uh, Sun Life. So I didn't have time. Yeah, that's funny. I hadn't thought of that. Why didn't I go back? I don't know. Because I, life got in the way. Right, but but music became a thing. Music became an absolute thing. And oh, maybe because in 1967 or 68, I moved into, with a bunch of, of friends, I, well, actually people I didn't know in 1967, I, I went into a house that was looking for people or a person. And the people in there, oh, this is a good one too. The people in there were John, uh, Johnny Watson, Penn Densham, David Tate, and Tim Thomas. And they had a house on Rose Avenue, just south of the, what the Wellesley Hospital was then. Right. And uh, I, never, I never met them before. And Johnny and Penn and David were in film. And they worked for one of the, the film companies at the time, but I can't remember which. However, we as a group, and Tim was at Chum FM already, and we as a group decided to move to another house. I, I do not remember why. We weren't evicted, but I think we just, maybe it was because nothing worked. I'm not sure. But we moved to Avenue Road. And jo- uh, Johnny and Penn and David, Johnny and Penn, started a company called Insight Productions, 
Well, so Insight Productions was a film company. Okay. And they started making film. And what happened was, while we were at the house on Avenue Road, they did a film called Lifetimes Nine. They, they got nine young men who were, I think, 14, 15 years old. And they offered them the, the uh, camera people and the uh, editing and the sound, because that's who they were. And one of the guys was a guy named Paul Shapiro. And they were all in school, of course, and they all had the opportunity to use this, this group of people who were all professionals and create a, their ad on life, their commercial on life. And so that uh, was done, and then they were, it was edited down to 15 minutes or something, and it got into, it got a, an Oscar consideration. Wow. Because it, somehow they got it played in, in, in Los Angeles, which was, I think, the key to even being considered. So anyway, that didn't uh, that that went on and everything was great. And then they decided Johnny and Penn decided to move to Los Angeles because the company was growing. So Insight Productions they sold to John Branton. John Branton has gone on to make a huge success out of it. They do all the big things, music shows, film. They do the Junos every year. They've been doing it for years and years and years. Branton produces and directs, and I mean they're very very highly regarded. So but this all started because we all moved to this house on Avenue Road. And then I moved with another group of people eventually down to Scarlet Street in about 68, 69, to Scarlet Street. And we lived next door to Gail Garnett, who was rehearsing at the time for Hair, uh, and uh, also uh, Luke Gibson, and Eugene Martinek, who were living next door, or next door but one, and um, John, uh, uh, Luke Gibson's had Luke and the Apostles, right. and then the Kensington Market, and Eugene, Mel, uh, Eugene Martinek was with John Mills Cockle, I think, in Syrinx, I think, and they, these were, and then Bernie Finkelstein had a little bungalow up the other end of Scarlet Street, uh, near to Young, I think, right by the fire hall up there. Right. And uh, he started True North. Mm-hmm. And he and Luke were very close, and I think still are. So somehow I was being in that group of people, musically. Right. And I've never thought about this. I've never talked about this, not because it's secret, but just because I've never had the time or people have been wanting to know the sort of back, the backstory. So anyway, Bernie Finkelstein and I would occasionally, we, we became pals, and we'd occasionally go to the Uptown Theatre, which had six theatres or three theatres. It was one of the first yeah, yeah. multi. And we saw, we saw the Bangladesh concert, I remember, in one, in one afternoon, and then we went to another I think we may have not paid for the second show. I think we may have snuck in, actually, come to think of it, but that was okay. And then, uh, and then I, started, I started going to the Penny Farthing, which is around the corner, mm-hmm. and the Minor Bird, which is also around the corner. And then one night, uh, oh, and then I met the guy who was doing the door at the riverboat. And so one night, and this is where my riverboat really began, 
I was sitting up at the front with him in the booth, and it was Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. Sonny and Brownie played twice a year. They would come to the riverboat, and they'd do either one or two weeks each time. So I'm, I reckon in my four and a half years there, I saw them well over 100, 120 times, right, their shows, because I was there all the time, six nights. Wow. Anyway, so I'm sitting up with Michael, and Bernie comes up in the break, and I honestly don't think he was fishing. I'm, I'm convinced he wasn't, because he was talking to Michael, and he said, I don't know what I'm going to do, my dishwasher didn't show up. So I said, I don't mind helping out and doing the dishes if you'd like. And he said, would you? I'll pay you. <laughs> So I did the dishes, and then... Uh, so that's how it all started. Yes. That's how it all started. So then the, then Bernie said at the end of the night, he said, could you come back again tomorrow? And I thought, and I said, yeah, I think I can, because with the National Ballet School, the little girls were, lights out were at like 8.39, and it was only like a hop, skip, and a jump, really, up to Riverboat. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the first show didn't usually start till eight o'clock, so dishes wouldn't really be need you know being right. washed until between shows. So I ended up then doing dishwashing, and then the second waitress, who I wish I could remember her name, but I can't, she left, and so Laurel Ward, Chick Roberts was married to Laurel. I, I don't think it was. I'm sure it wasn't that happy at that point because um, then. We had Jim Queskin of Jim Queskin Jug Band playing, and Laurel called me one of the mornings, and she said, okay, I'm leaving. I'm going to the commune in Boston with Jim, and my job's yours. (laughs) So I suddenly was head waitress, and then Bernie gave me more and more responsibility. Obviously, he realized that I could handle whatever it was, and he wouldn't show up a lot of nights. So I ended up managing, and I was there four and a half years, from 69 to 74. Right. So you must have seen some amazing shows during that time, because this would have been when that was happening. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Um, I, I'm saying I'm a lot. I'm sorry, I shouldn't. That's not that's good <laughs> broadcasting. I know that. I, I think some of the highlights, well, John Hartford played um, the several a couple of times at least uh, and he brought a band that was absolutely to die for Vasa Clements on fiddle um, Tut Taylor on dobro and Norman Blake on guitar and John Hartford on banjo mainly and fiddle and guitar and John Hartford wrote well, his most famous song in terms of general public knowing is, is one that's been recorded many times but probably the most famous recording was Glenn Campbell's was Gentle on My Mind mm-hmm. And that song bought John a shopping plaza in Los Angeles and a tower. <laughs> it, it did. Um, and he was one of the most lovely people I've ever, ever had the privilege to know. So for anybody who doesn't know what the riverboat was, can you just explain to them what this club was? The riverboat was a basement, a long, narrow basement. The riverboat uh, worked on the premise of six night stands a week of six nights so our weeks were tuesday through sunday the the booking mandate was i don't know how bernie i i don't know how exactly bernie got the people he got except it was a network and and you have one act and that leads to another 
it was the breeding ground for so many singer-songwriters and blues cats and, right. and like Sonny and Brownie. John Lee Hooker, I have stories about John Lee Hooker. Um, Jesse Fuller. Jesse Fuller used to drive up from California in his beat-up old station wagon. And when he was driving up, and he was in certainly in his late 70s at the time that I worked with him, and he would park on the side of the highway to sleep when he was driving up because it was a long haul. Yeah, yeah. And when he got to Toronto, he wouldn't take a hotel because he couldn't, he couldn't justify not taking the money back to his family. So he'd park in the back of the riverboat and he'd use the, the washroom and he's, I think, sleep in his, his station wagon. Um, a magical human being. Um, Jackson Brown played a week. That was pretty cool. Jackson Brown had a guy named David Lindley who was his, who was his accompanist. Right. And, and his, he, Jackson was, I think, 20, 21, and he was a baby. I, I mean, he really was. He was on the road, but, but it, I think it was like a bit of a mystery still, you know? And had he, written, he recorded by then or not? Yes, he had the okay. Saturate Before You Using album, the first one. Right. Gorgeous album. Um, and, uh, and David Lindley... I'm telling you about the, I've got to tell you about the dressing room. This was one of the, the hardest things for me to learn. When Bernie sold the building or sold or moved out, I don't know if he owned the building. I think he didn't. I don't know. Okay. When he, when the riverboat closed in, 19, in 1988, I have the t-shirt still, the riverboat wake. Uh, he brought as many people back as, as he could to, to do the last few mm. nights. Uh, everybody would draw, do something on, on the walls in the big dressing room. The big dressing room was probably about eight feet by five feet, maybe 10 feet by five feet. It was, so that was the big one. Right. And the walls were covered with the most incredible art. John Hartford was a John Hartford was a, a riverboat captain. He had his riverboat captain pilot's license, and he therefore could marry, christen, and bury. I think people on the Julie Bell. Hmm. Anyway, he so he did. He was also a fantastic artist, and he did this incredible steamboat that was so gorgeous. David Linley was this. First of all, David Lindley had had some kind of brilliance in 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 some kind of martial arts discipline, and he drew the most amazing cartoons of Jackson and him and and other people on the walls. Everybody drew, everybody signed. It was the it was worth a fortune. I I mean, if anybody had yeah, yeah. done it, taken it, but you couldn't. Anyway, so uh, Jackson Brown, Jeff Buckley. Tim, it was Tim Buckley was his dad. Tim Buckley played the riverboat many times. Tim Harden, um, Joni, of course. I never, I, total, total disclosure, I never worked with Joni or Neil, but Murray McLaughlin, Bruce Coburn, Dan Hill, the Good Brothers, uh, you name them. David Whiffin. David Whiffin, David Whiffin, I had to try and keep him... In the in the club between shows, otherwise he'd I think go and try and find a bar. <laughs> Leon Redbone, I had to track where he would be so I could go send somebody to get him back from the pool hall. Right on Blue on Street. Uh, Blue Street, I think yeah. it was. But all these people and 
they were like it was like family you know they'd come once a year twice a year and it would be six nights so I got to know these people awfully well David Bromberg David Bromberg uh, was an amazing artist he really was and he had a fantastic band but he was he was close to like throwing up his hands and saying I quit the whole business because he was with Columbia and they had a new album called Banded in a Bathing Suit and he was on the road in the bus mainly with the with the eight piece band, seven piece band with the road manager and David. So it was nine pieces for like 10, 12 months, something like that, crazy time, mm-hmm. crazy. So he was at the end of his tether, you know. Um, what did you learn from that experience of working at the riverboat? I learned what it's like to be on the road by not going anywhere, but it was like being on the road because every week I'd have a new, mm-hmm. a new act, artist. And so I learned about, it's a good question. What did I learn? I learned that it's an addiction. Music is an addiction. Being involved in it is something I can't imagine not having. Right. Uh, I learned that it's not glamorous there are occasions where it's a lot of fun. I mean, I, I thoroughly loved it and, and I loved the challenges and I loved Chris Christopherson. The night, the night before Chris was going to start his week. Now, the voice, you have to understand, Chris Christopherson had the first album, I think it was on Monument Records and I don't know why I even know that, but I think it was Monument. And he wasn't known really yet. And his voice, he was big. In, in my mind, he was a big man. He had to be with that voice. And it was raining on a Sunday night, and it was whoever's show it was, the last night of their week. And it was pouring rain, and there was a, there was a door open from the back, the back door, and this guy kind of fell into the club out of his mind drunk. And I went to him, and I didn't know who he was. And I went and I said, we're not really we're at the end of the night and, he says, and I said well really it's not a good place to be I didn't and he said and and I went okay then <laughs> so uh, the first night he played this the Tuesday night again he came we had to give everybody their money back that first night because or or give them another show night because mm-hmm. he was too drunk I mean at that time he was living the life However, Chris Christopherson, nice segue, Jane, thank you. Uh, Chris Christopherson brought Jim, uh, John Prine and Steve Goodman to Paul Anker. Want to hear that story? Yeah. So Chris Christopherson, was, it was a bit later in, in the, the years, and he had made fame. He had fame, and people were listening to him, and he obviously got himself through the, the first flush of success, I suppose. Right. And uh, Paul Anker was some kind of friend. They were friends. So he had seen, Christopherson had seen both Steve and John at, at the club in Chicago. I can't remember the name, but it, but it was where they both played all the time. In fact, they were like furniture there. They, you know, they, they do the door, they clean up right. the, the tables, and they play. And he'd heard them, and he was, he was blown away by their songs. 
So I guess one night he was talking to Anka and said, you should hear these two guys. I wasn't there, so I can't tell you exactly right. what they said. But so Paul Anka was interested. So Paul Anka said, get them to me. And he was playing the Plaza Hotel in New York. And so John and Steve were summoned. And these guys were the best friends you, you could ever, ever imagine of each other. They, they, they had such a beautiful love for each other. Um, so they went to the Plaza Hotel and they looked like ragamuffins. You know, they, John was six months out of the army or something and, you know, and, a, and was a postie and the whole thing. And Steve was about four foot ten, something like that. And they walked to the hotel and they said, yeah, we're here to see Mr. Chris, Mr. Um, Anchor. And, they, and the guy kind of looked at them with horror and he said, um, does he expect you? And they said, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the, he called, they called up to the suite and the guy, and Anka said, oh, sure, send him up. So they went up to the, the suite in the Plaza Hotel. And uh, he met them, and I guess he was probably a little shocked. I don't know. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm putting words into that no. aren't theirs. So, but what I do know is, according to what Steve told me, uh, was he said, okay, I got to go do a show downstairs. But make yourselves at home, and uh, room service, order, it's fine. And and see what you come up with if you write anything together, you know. So these two guys are sort of like, uh, okay then. And and I think that's where, where Steve coined the phrase, hugging the porcelain altar, um, because they ordered a lot of booze and a lot of exotic foods, and I think they got a little hammered probably. <laughs> anyway, they, they did start writing a song together. And I think it was the prison song, Mother Truck, Dog Train, Christmas, Jail. I think those were the elements of the song. Mother went to prison on Christmas and the dog got run over by a train, something like that. It was, uh, so they started the bones of that. Anyway, so then Anka came back up and, and they talked and, and I guess he bundled them in such some kind of mode of transport to go wherever they were going. And then he took them on as an as as management and his brother his brother Andy Anker who was like this naive little 19 year old who who was not at all like his brother um was their road manager so he was sent out with whichever one it was I have a card from Steve and Andy Anker sent to to us for the riverboat saying thank you so much for the week it was amazing and blah 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 and we hope we'll be back and it was I still have the envelope and the, and the car, the note. So, of course, Steve Goodman went on, and mm -hmm. I, I'm sure people know him. His biggest, his most well-known song was um, City of New Orleans. Right. That was actually played, apparently, to wake the astronauts up in the first foray into space. Really? Yeah. Good morning, America, how are you? Yeah. That song. So it would be waking them up. And then, so then Steve's play... I think John played first and did a week. And we were all like gobsmacked at these songs. And this guy who couldn't sing and couldn't play the guitar really, but he wrote the most incredible songs. And then Steve followed at some point with his week and another like, oh my God. It, like th these, were, these were moments that you kind of go, we are so lucky to be here. I, I think that's what I've been enjoying through the years is how lucky I was to be there and mm -hmm. to be able to go and boss him around. <laughs> but did you know at that point how lucky you were? 
like did you I think, think so yeah. I mean I I was I I yes I did know how lucky I was I I I felt like this was where I was supposed to be how, how many what was the capacity of the riverboat how many people were there I think it was 116 or 118 I I the numbers I think the riverboat was 134 Yorkville and so then the number of capacity would be about 118. If I'm wrong, the riverboat was 118 and the capacity was 134. That, this is seriously, I'm not being kidding. Right. I'm not kidding. Um, yes, and the Incredible String Band were one of Britain's top groups. And very, they were very uh, Christ, uh, Christian scientists, I think. Okay. Um, and they played a week. And they were fantastic, fantastic. But they brought a very interesting crowd. Seals and Crofts, the same thing. They they had they they had a. It was I, I hesitate to say cult because I don't know that it was a cult. It was it was a belief. Right. Um, and they they brought a lot of people who had the same belief. And and I remember with the incredible string band actually people sitting on on the floor. I mean I'm sure we were totally illegal. You know with the, with the. With the fire the, marshal. The good part was that we didn't have a licensing problem, you know, because <laughs> the heaviest license, the heaviest alcohol we had in there, other than when a, a re- record company bought the show, Harry Chapin, they Warner's bought the night, the for the Monday night to do a special industry night. They brought booze in to, because they'd bought the house, and I wouldn't let my kitchen guys serve them because we weren't licensed. But what we had was essence of rum rum extract so that would go into the cafe or room that was the the nearest thing we had to alcohol why did it close i think probably it just ran its course and i i haven't asked bernie that um and how did you feel when you saw the end well i had left in 1974 oh okay so you didn't stay till the very end bernie called me back when we when the when the the wakes were going on and um and we called the one of the kitchen guys back, and we got some of the the door staff and that kind. Of, I say door staff. We had one person doing door, but we we had another person who could do it, and a couple of waitresses. So we we brought the people back. Um, I had moved on because it was 1974, and I went to work with Brian Ahern. Right. And uh, that eats And that's out. that's chapter however many now. And how did that happen? Everything happened by chance. Everything. I, I swear to you. Um, Brian. Oh, I, I recall. Brian had, um, and, and the mother of Shannon, his daughter, had uh, split. And she had moved out. She had moved to friends of, of theirs. Um, Patrick Reverens. Patrick being a woman, Patrick, and Patrick was the, is, the was a very 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 highly regarded uh, dress designer for and, and Anne Murray always used her for her stage clothes and and a lot of people did, and so this was all connected to John Allen Cameron, and I think John Allen Cameron and Robbie McNeil, and Rodney Crow, Rodney, so somehow. I had met Brian and Bob. I'd known them for a while. Bob Hunker was Brian's left-hand, right-hand man for several years. And Brian had built... He'd bought the, this lead-line truck, and it's called an Actron. It was a presidential um, truck. 
so that's why it was lead lined. So it was bulletproof. Okay. And it was used for maybe McGovern, I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, so Brian built an Actron, and it was the first mobile recording truck in Canada, certainly. Okay. And Brian had an um, had a contract with Warner Music in the U.S. Mary Martin, who I think was Canadian, is Canadian originally. I think I'm not sure. Anyway, so uh, he had a he had a contract to produce Rodney. Jonathan Edwards, um, Emmy, Emmy Lou Harris, and Peter Pringle. And that's how I met, is because of Peter Pringle, who I managed for a while. Uh, Peter and Bob, Hunk, uh, Bob Carpenter and Brent Tickham. And David Whiffin did, Brian did an album with David Whiffin. Anyway, so I, I met them and then I started working with Brian with Shannon because Shannon was six five six and I looked after her and I sort of ran the house and then I also got to go to an actron and hear recording going on and all that stuff and and uh and then at Brian, this point have you given up acting completely I've never given up acting but uh, oh, okay. for money yes right Oh, that's right. So that, that leads me to a cute little story. Uh, so anyway, I was with Brian for a couple of years. And then, uh, not a couple of years with him here, but I stayed at the house. Um, he took the truck down to Los Angeles, to um, Coldwater Canyon. They, they got a house down there, and, um, and they moved the truck down, and they lived there, and they had the recording truck on site, and, and uh, they did a lot of albums there. But Shannon stayed here for schooling, and then she'd go to her grandmother in the East Coast and that kind of thing. Then, because of Brian, I had met Salim Sachadina. We used to call him Salim Such a Nice Day. Um, and he was general manager of Eastern Sound Recording Studios. And so then when, when it wasn't... I, it, Brian had Shannon move down. When he, when he and Emmy got together, and then he wanted Shannon, so he moved Shannon down to L.A., so then I, I went to work at Eastern Sound as reception and switch and uh, booking, studio booking. And, my, and the reason I said that led me when you asked me about acting, no, it hadn't really because we had three studios at Eastern Sound. We had the big studio that took a, an orchestra, full orchestra. Mm-hmm. And we had, and that's where I met Haygood and Mickey Irby and Maribeth Solomon and all those people. And then we also had the small studio that would take a, a group of about six musicians. And then the tiny voiceover studio that Eddie Shack and Paul Rimstead used to do a lot of commercials in there. And one day, this is, this is funny, one day I'm sitting up at, at my desk and um, Brian Nimmons, who was the, the, who, who was the engineer and producer for, the, for those uh, commercials, he called me on and he said, can you ask Salim if you can come down to the studio for a few minutes? I need an English voice to record something. So I said, so I went to Salim and I asked if I could and he said, certainly. So somebody else came and sat at the reception and I went down to the end and walked in and, and, uh, and they handed me a piece of paper and they said, okay, we want you to say this in your English voice. So the line was, only in Canada, pity. 
Have you heard of that? Yeah. It was a tea company, right? Yeah. A tea bit, a thing. I, I don't drink tea, so I don't even, I, I don't know whether, I don't think it, Salada wasn't because it was, Salada was Haygood's piece, da 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 da, da the homecoming, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was Red another. Red or something. I think okay. the Red Rose, yeah. I, All I said was that. Yeah. I got paid a hundred bucks for it. You should ask for commission. That I, was huge. I didn't have, an, I wasn't part of a union, unfortunately, right, right. But, or I would be sitting in some kind of mansion. Well, you'd have a lot of tea in your backyard. Yeah. But anyway, I, I got a hundred bucks, and in 1974 or five, that was a lot of money. 75, 76, whatever. And um, so then I forgot about it, and then, then somebody said, was talking about it. I said, I think I did that. And then I found the, the newsletter that we used to put out each week at, at Eastern Sound, and it says, and congratulations to Jane Harbury, who got the, the role of, <laughs> of, of this tea thing. So that was my acting that I would call acting on an official level there. And, but, but I've never really stopped. I mean, this is all an act, you know? I mean, life is an act, right? right. I, I, I love it and, and I enjoy it. Okay, so how did you get into publicity? Because of Peter Pringle, I, I got into management because of Peter Pringle. And then... Uh, uh, sorry, and this is at what phase? This would have been 1978, after I left Eastern Sound. So I started... Peter wanted me to work with him, and he, he had done... He was on A&M at that point, and... Um, and he'd done an album, and the, the single off the album was kind of a saccharine. It just occurred to me it was called, but it, it, they, Peter was, is bilingual. And so they had done a French version, and they had, act, and they had released the French version. Je viens de découvrir was the, the French. And Peter had translated it and, and then recorded it. And it was incredibly successful in Quebec it would, or in the total French-speaking market in Canada. Ridiculously successful. So much so that they decided to, to do the album with French lyrics, uh, which they did. And we started, and, and, and I was taking care of Bindu Productions, Peter's company that he started, and we set up Bindu in my in the house on, on Oxford Street actually was there then. Okay, what did you know about managing at that point? N nothing. Okay. <laughs> nothing. But I knew nothing about anything. I, I mean, I, I knew nothing about being a school matron when I was 17. I, I knew how to take a temperature. I knew when a child was sick or pretending. I knew how to be bossy. I knew how to... It's all been that. It's all, I knew nothing about management. But then, so we set up Bindu, and and then Eric Nagler, who was doing children's performing, he came to me, and then Mika Barnes, and Mika Barnes was like 18, 19 years old. Okay, wait, why did they come to you? What is it that you had offered, do you think? I didn't offer anything. I, I don't, I, I don't know, actually, I, I, I don't know. Um, it seemed logical to me how you manage. It seemed logical to me how you how you do things. It, it is logical. Well, um, but it, it's a complicated business, the music business. I mean, it might be logical, but I I I don't know. If, I think it's it's a tough business to be in. 
Therefore, it was a lot easier back then. Yeah. Everything was easier back then. I, seriously. Okay, because so when you, when you became a manager, tell me what the goals would have been as a manager for your artist. Well, here's where it gets muddy in terms of management versus tour managing versus agent versus publicist. Right. Because I'd never really heard the word publicist before. However, because here's, here's, here's where the connections go. It all seemed logical because I knew a lot of people by then because of my work at the riverboat. Mm-hmm. I knew who, who to call for certain things. I knew what people did. I knew how to get to people. So when, when Peter decided to hand me his business, um, I called on people that I already knew. I called on Peter Goddard. I called on Jack Batten. I called on Bruce Kirkland. I called on Liam Lacey, all of whom had been very, very much front and center in the music business, in the music writing and the music world right. in papers. So I, so I called on them to tell them things and to spread the word. And then I called on people that I had met, agents, people who were managing people, and I I just saw what they had done, and I, I guess I had stored it somewhere in my brain. I, and I, I'm, I'm really being honest here. I, 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 it was all faking it. It was all just like, okay, this has got to be done. With Peter, I knew we had to start a fan club. I knew we had to, but I, but, but the challenge was that um, his his uh, fan base in in the French in the francophone Canadian world was so huge and it was so young. It ran so young demographically. I'd say fourteen to twenty five, and there was no way that we could lose those fans, and we would have, I think, if if we had gone along being totally honest about Peter's sexuality. In fact, Doug Chappelle, on more than one occasion at A&M Records, said, you should marry Peter. So I said, you've got to be kidding. And they said, and, Peter, and Doug would say, no, and then the fans will understand that, that it's okay. Um, so we had one fan who wrote Peter screeds of pages of letters about how I I know how we will sit together at the piano and we will be together and and we will write beautiful music and we will make beautiful music, and it was really sad, you know. And, and she leaned on me, and which was I, I and I feel bad to this day that I kind of laughed about it, but I I had to because it was so weird, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I knew we had to start a fan club, and so we did a bilingual fan club and we did photo shoots and we did we did calendars. One of my prizes was a calendar photo Peter's face in the center and the months all around and and he signed it and they all got one and I got somebody to run the fan club and then I called on people out in the east coast like Mickey Quace who's was a wonderful is a wonderful guy and I I got set up dates I got dates in in Halifax I got dates and we built a tour of New Glasgow places I'd never even heard of but I got my connections going and then I with Eric Nagler I got to say that that was not the most fun time actually to be honest with you but uh, I tried really hard and then I I called I think we probably mutually called it quits but it wasn't a good fit Mika I took from sitting behind the piano in in little bars on Queen Street and I and 
it was obvious to me that he had if he was, if it's his name he had to be out front he had to be there right. and and playing to an audience and and being a bit showbiz rather than sitting behind the keyboard you know what i mean so we did that and he'll talk about it to this day um as i you know that i that i set the path for him whether i did or not don't matter you know it, it was what it was but with me, with peter it was kind of easy because of the quebec and the francophone thing that that we sold gold in in Quebec. Richard Horbachak, who we called Uncle Dad, and I'd sent them out on the road. And I actually went out to the East Coast on the start of the, the first tour because I wanted to meet Mickey Quace that I'd been talking to and he'd been booking for me and um, and set the, the, the tour in motion. And Richard Horbachak was sound man, tour manager, um, everything out on the road. And, and Jimmy... Doug Wilde, Jimmy Wilde, who's a who was a fine pianist, young young guy, and and Richard Fallis and somebody else were in our band, and um, we did really well. And then I got them a gig at, as the band for at the O'Keefe Center for the Mary Kay Cosmetics. Right. They had a convention, and it was all pink, and there was a pink Cadillac driven onto the stage and given away to the top agent. And so I, I, we did the gala, and I, and I negotiated like this ridiculous amount of money, ridiculous for like half an hour. And Judy, oh, oh Judy, she was married. She's Emily Claire Barlow, mother, and she was married to uh, whatever his name, Barlow, Brian Barlow, the drummer. And so Judy is a great backup singer, and and some other fantastic Colina Phillips. They, they and they we call them the Pringletones. <laughs> I mean, not publicly, but we just call them that. And I got pink roses for everybody. They all had to wear pink roses because it was all pink, right? And we, I, I can't remember what we got, but it was crazy money for like half an hour. And so that was how it all went. Then publicity was like easy because I just call the people that I'd worked with at the Riverboat people who'd come and, and see shows and write about them because they did in those days yeah so tell me did you enjoy management or you know when I asked you about how did you get into publicity you said because of pet management so now the question is why did you get out of management into publicity um or did you I, I that that's a really good question you know what it was like a, a love affair when you drift apart I, I think I don't know Pete I don't know um Peter I don't know, actually. <laughs> it was there and then it wasn't. Um, but it was. But there was no bad feelings. I mean, that's the miracle of, of this life, you know. But when it, when, it, when it wasn't there, you decided that you would get into publicity. No, I didn't decide to get into publicity. That fell, in, that fell into place because of the publicity that I'd done when we were on the road, when there were gigs going. I had Peter playing a lot of places like the Jarvis House, the band just to get an Elmer combo downstairs, that kind of thing. And so I would call up these guys and I would write. It, it wasn't really a media release because I didn't have that art down. I didn't even really think about it. I'd just say, hey, Peter got it. Look, he's playing at it. Will you come out and review him or whatever? So that became publicity. Then this is probably, and I don't regret this at all because I made a lot of friends and I sustained them, but it was probably the one of the worst, part of it was bad and part of it was good. I, I was approached by Adrian Heaps, who was the GM of 
Duke Street Records, which was basically, I think, just a, a place for Manta Sound to... I don't know what it was. It was a, a label, and, and the first artist that I was working with... Um, oh, I'm trying to think of the timing. I'd met Haygood at Easton Sound because he did all the film scores there. Mm-hmm. And I met Mickey and Marybeth because they worked with Haygood. And I knew Lenny because Miles and Lenny had played the riverboat when they were teenagers. And so that was all a connection. But then I think, um, I think that I, I went to Duke Street Records because I was asked to be, to go for an interview for the national publicity director. Sounds grand, huh? (laughs) Not so much, but, uh, the, the acts that were there were, were some great, Jane Sibbery her first album, um, Mo Kaufman, Haygood, all kinds of people were, were on Duke Street Records. And I, and I had known all these, I'd, see, I'd known most of them, not Jane, but I'd, I'd known the jazz people from Eastern Sound. Right. So I was hired at, a, like, I mean, the money was ridiculous and I was, and I was totally broke and I was supposed to, do everything you know and and enjoy it but i'm trying to so so eastern sound was 75 to 78 then i was uh then i started managing then i was hired by duke street records and that was like 1984 85 and i lasted six months and i was fired and and i I was delighted, uh, truthfully. I, I, I mean, I, sincerely, I was de- delighted. But at the same time, you know, I needed an income. So then I, I told Richard Flohill and I told Smale, Joanne Smale. And Smale had a lot of gigs going on, and she hired me to do something or other. And I, and I, I guess that's where I, where I really honed my skills. Because I was a hell of a good publicist in the, in those days. I I mean I'd already done it at at Eastern Sound, and then I then I was I had the opportunity to do a lot. When you said you were a good publicist, tell me what that entailed. What was being a good publicist back then? What would you telling say? the story okay. and so and what having what that mean? <laughs> that means calling up whoever it was and saying, I have this artist and and I know. That this is because when you do work in the business, you you get to know who likes what. Right. And so I would I would not target everybody. I would not try for everybody. I would approach it in a manner, have it listen and tell me what you think. Okay, I- but on a higher level, what is your goal to get media coverage for your artist? Um, is it to get airplay? Is it get, like what would be? It would be to get attention on them and to get airplay and to get stories written about them. And in those days, television was a factor. You know, there was like, because City TV had, was well in. And they were as true to their word as ever, where everywhere, where everywhere, you know, they really were. You'd you'd call, you'd send out a a media release and they would show up. Always, 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 always. And how would you, how would you um, measure your success at what you did? I don't know that I did. Um, I don't know that I did. I, I. How did I measure success? By the artist being happy. Okay. I think really. Um, because it was so much easier then. 
that's that's what I have to stress. It is so much harder now because there's so little space, there's so little opportunity. Um, there's there's virtually no television. There's virtually no radio potential. There's there's virtually no print um, opportunities anymore. Okay, so tell me what you do as a publicist today, today? that's quite different than w- with all those limitations. Okay, or, the first yeah. thing I... The, the, okay, I'll tell you the very first... My mantra for this is when I'm talking to an artist, I make you absolutely no guarantees that anything will happen. All I can tell you is the gar- the only guarantee I can give you is that everyone who should know will know. That's the only guarantee I can give. Uh, the, gar- the, 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 the skill that I have now that I, I guess I absorbed through the years was that k- keep on the good side of the people that you're trying to trying to get something from, which isn't to say you defer to them and you you kind of okay. Go so grumbling. who would that be? Are we talking media? Are we talking media? Okay, so newspapers, magazines, television. radio, print, okay. television, uh, bloggers. You know, right. today we have a different element. We have bloggers, uh, the, the the camera assignment people, and you know what it is? It's make no promises to anybody. Okay. Other than trust me, this artist is worth listening to. This artist is worth you reading about because they trust me, I think, enough. They, the media, know that I don't take on garbage. Okay, so tell me about that process. Um, how how does that, if I came to you and said, I'm going to do a new solo album, I need you to, I would like you to be my publicist. Do you, how does that work? Do you listen? Okay, I will never take an artist on until I've listened to them. Right. To, to what the music is. It, it does me no good at all to go back and say, well, yeah, I've got the last album I did. Okay, great. When was that? That was in 2000. Uh, that does me no good because that's 18, 19 years. So I want to hear what's going now because if I don't like it, I'm not going to take it on. It's not fair to them, to me, to anybody. So the one thing I will never say to an artist, it sucks because that's not for me to say because it's my opinion. Right. But I will say to an artist, I don't think I'm the right person for you, but I will try and find somebody who is. Uh, I, I, I'm not out to hurt somebody. I'm not out to be cruel. It's not, my, it's not my job, and I have no right because I might miss something that's going to be huge, and then I'll live to regret it, but that's my job. Has that ever happened? Um, I have to ask. Well, actually, I, I'm trying to think. There's somebody that... Who was it that I didn't take on because... Who was it that I didn't take on because I thought that they were too much like somebody I already had? Uh, and I'm honestly blanking on this. If I think about it, I'll, if it comes back, I'll tell you. But uh, but I, it has happened one time. But that's uh, just one time. One time. Wow. That's pretty good. Yeah, I guess <laughs> it is, huh? Uh, I, I, I mean, yeah. I don't, I, okay, so I don't know, I don't need specifics, but in that line, you said, okay, I was a damn good publicist when by the time you got into this. Um, was there anything that, I'm going to ask both sides, that you did you, you were totally surprised by? Or was there anything that you did that you thought would be, that would be big, big, that just didn't happen? 
uh, yeah, there the, the, the are artists that I believe, I, I, I truly believe when I agree to take somebody on, I truly believe that there's a reason, uh, that I have a reason to do this and that, that people are going to embrace it. But timing is of the essence. That's number one. Right. Uh, timing can kill an artist. Timing can kill a show. Timing can play havoc. In other words, I remember a show I was doing and I was, I was really excited and the media response had been incredible to the to the date and then so uh, when you say a show you're doing were you promoting it i was i was public uh, the publicist for it for yeah. one concert yeah on a certain night okay and i was i was 200 percent convinced that i was going to have an amazing house that people who had said they were coming were coming and then it kind of fizzled because nobody that said they were coming showed and then the next day I found out why because the Rolling Stones did a surprise uh, un, ungiven date at the Horseshoe Tavern right, right. <laughs> you can't there's nothing you can do there's not a damn thing you can do to change that outcome um, one time I was doing a oh here's, here's a uh, this was this was actually very unpleasant I was doing a, a photo call and an, a, a media call at the Walker Gallery, Walker Court Gallery at the Art Gallery of Ontario. And it was for Jeanette Zing and Marshall Pinkowski's Opera Atelier. And it was, I think, August. It certainly was one of the hottest days of the year. And it was a one o'clock media call. And I'd had fantastic response. I came armed with my media list. They were, they weren't the easiest person to people to deal with at the time. Uh, maybe the heat got to them, or maybe they, they just weren't. I don't know. Anyway, so it was a one o'clock call, and all the the dancers and singers were all wearing period costume from the the um, two hundred and fifty years ago. You know, with the cinched waists mm -hmm. and the the bro the brocaded. Um, uh, pat, like trousers yeah, yeah. and the buckled shoes and the and the wigs and the whole thing and it wasn't air conditioned stuff. in mm. this Walker Gallery Walker Court Gallery whatever and it was one o'clock and it was coming up to one o'clock and and they came out Marshall and Jeanette one of them or both of them came out and said where are they and I said I actually don't know and this was before I had a mobile phone or a, anything right. well most people didn't have in those days this has been eighty. So nobody came and nobody came and nobody came and and I'm really freaking out. And they William Littler was coming. I mean everybody was coming. All the classical, all the all the television, everybody was coming. And there was nobody. And then suddenly T Tony Wanamaker, who was one of the the best cameramen at City, he came running in. He said, "Oh, I'm so sorry. Am I am I too late?" And I'm, well, no, actually, it hasn't started because you're the first one here. It was I don't know. Maybe it was ten after, quarter after. And he said, oh, God, thank God. And I said, what, what, are you okay? You were out of bed? He said, I ran. He said, I ran from King and Young. And I said, why? And he said, because there was an explosion of a manhole cover at, at the corner of King, the northwest corner of King and Young uh, with the subway. And somebody was killed in this explosion. And it was a gas explosion. 
so everybody like had to go there right. all the cameras and and everybody was stuck on the subway and the whole thing so finally we got enough people to to do the thing but I mean, they were very, very upset, and they were upset at me, and I don't blame them. I mean, they had some; they had to vent on somebody, yeah. you know. But that—that's the sort of thing that happens, and all you can do is say, "I'm really sorry. It was out of my control. Here's the list that didn't make this list up, you know." Um, but that's—that can happen. But there How about are, the I, other side? Hmm? So, are there? I know you take on clients and don't promise anything, but there are times when you put on something. Has there been a time when? things were much bigger or way bigger than you thought it would be? I think I set my expectations fairly low doing these things. Um, and because I'm very good at, at taking care of people when they come in, you know, like welcoming them and, and knowing when they, they're supposed to be at a place or not at a place, um, I'm always, I will have a list but I, I don't expect they will all show up. This is the, this is the reality of my job, right. is that these people say, say I'm, I'm, going, I'm coming, unless something happens, but I'm, I'm, this is my first call. And so I put them down, and they're there if they come, and they're welcomed warmly. But I don't expect them, because I know that, that things happen. I think that's part of the, the, that's part of how I've survived without having nervous breakdowns, actually. <laughs> Um, because I'm thrilled when they show up, mm -hmm. but I don't expect that. I expect that they're going to try because that's what I've been told. Tell me what you expect from the artist. So from let's say you, you decide to work with somebody. What is your expectation from the artist or the event or whatever you, you're hired to promote? Well, my expectation from the artist and or their management is that I will be given the information in a timely manner, that I will be given some creative uh, freedom. But I also make that work both ways because when I create something, I send it and I say draft. If you don't like it, I might slip my wrist, but, but you know, that's, it's okay, you can do it. And I, and I jokingly do that, obviously, but, um, but I want them to know that, that it's their, it's their, event it's their life however i will fight tooth and nail if i think something's wrong mm -hmm. with how they how they want themselves presented i will take out brilliant unbelievable um unless it's a direct quote from a media person that i trust and i always tell an artist and i tell my class i teach um i don't want to hear an acclamation from mum that's not going to count for anything. I don't want to hear that Fred the Butcher says, this is the greatest thing since I sliced the roast beef, whatever. It's not going to wash. I want it from legitimate people or not at all. I think, I, I think probably uh, you just made me think of something and somebody who's so dear to my heart, and that was Lassa, Lassa mm -hmm. de Sela. Um, I, that was the luckiest day maybe of my life when, when I was contacted by her manage, manager, her A&R director at Audiogram, Denny uh, Wolf. And how did that happen? Is it just because of reputation or? How did that happen? Well, yeah, why did they seek you? Oh, out? I'll tell you why. Because uh, it was, dis the, uh, Audiogram was, maybe still is, dis distributed by Select. And Select had Keely Kemp. And she was talking to Denny Wolf, I guess, and 
and I guess they were talking about publicist for the rest of Canada, Rock, as we call it. And um, and she said, she recommended me. And this would have been in 96, I guess, 97. And so Denise said thank you to her. And, and then he got in touch with me. And he said, I'm coming into Toronto, and I would like to meet you. And then I said, can you tell me a bit about this artist? And he said, she's a, she's a gypsy. And I said, okay, my imagination goes right now to, to the, the, the bandana around the head, the, right. the, the hoop earrings, and the, and the crystal ball. You say gypsy, right? And uh, so he laughed and, and he said, not really, but uh, you're not, it's not far off, you know. So anyway, so I hadn't heard anything of her and Keely brought him over to my house and we sat down and he brought a tape, a cassette. And I put it on and I just went, oh, my dog, is what I said. And, uh, and so, I, I honestly, I, I'm, I'm going, this is, this is everything. This is everything I've ever wanted. So I, I said, I, I'm definitely the person for you, definitely. So he said, and, and I like you, whatever it was. So we decided that I would work. And again, he did it so right. He, he said, we're going to do a six-month contract with you. The album isn't coming out till March. This was... October, November, a dream. This is a dream time frame. So we worked out a deal financially, and uh, he said, when do you need finished products? And I said, the sooner the better. So then we decided, and, and I was given so much freedom to do this based on I guess the varied skill sets or, or whatever that I that they, they thought they thought I believed I had. So I, I said we have to once I started working on this, I said we have to do a media night. Absolutely we must do a media night, we bring her in with the band and I said, Great. And then I went to Sybil, who and at the time it was the top of the senator, and um, I said, We're we're we wanna do a night with you. And we want to do two nights on the other side of it because we think maybe it was only, I forget, I, I can't remember whether it was one or two nights that we, we said put a hold on. And I think we did this on a Monday, so probably we wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been a conflict to have Tuesday, Wednesday on hold. So I started the ball rolling and I started uh, talking to people and and I think I had the advanced CDs that far, and they were complete, and I think I had them that far ahead. And so I started sending them out, and people were starting to react so incredibly, beautifully. And um, I, I, sent it to some t I sent it to some TV people, and I talked about it. We didn't have, there were no links in those days. I, I don't, you know, I mean, right. social media was there, but it was 97, it wasn't what it is now you know the, it wasn't anything really big so I sent out the CDs to people and um, particularly long lead and uh, everybody just freaked right out everybody and we we got a response that was 
beyond anything. And we were already going to have a packed top of the centre with a very choice uh, media and industry list. And Lassa came with the band, uh, wonderful players too. They came in early and, and we, we did some stuff. The day of show in the morning, we did a couple of TV shows. And then they set up in the afternoon and we did an early media night, like six or 6.30. And uh, the band played, they played and everybody just went wild. And the, every camera was there, every television was there. And the next day, we had a lineup outside the senator to get in to to come and pay to hear her, and from then on, and then I, because I was the principal player with Lassa, and then and then Denny was was leaning on me, and we we booked other venues, and she kept coming back with the band, and then uh, and then they submitted for Juno for the that following year, that following October. And she was nominated, and she won it the following year. So 98, 98, I forget, 99. And that was the one in Vancouver. And I sent one of my people out, because I had about five or six, because we were doing the Geminis and the Junos and, right. and, and um, North By at the time. You know, we were doing big events as well as artists. And... Uh, and we kept her going for two years. She just played and played. And then after, and then, and then I connected her. I connected them with Richard Mills, and then I connected them with um, the company Terry McBride's Network in the states. Right. And Network was thrilled and signed her for the states. And then she just she did what I would have done if it had been me. She said, "Okay, I ne I need to get out of here for a while." And she j went to join her three sisters in France, her three sisters had started a, a single ring circus, hmm. a touring circus. Like they, they, they squatted in places and right. it was absolutely perfect for the Lhasa um, legend because that's how they'd been brought up. And so she, she traveled with them for a year, year and a half. And then she went to um, Marseille where her mother was and, um, and started writing songs and came back and recorded The Living Road. Meantime, I have my first platinum record because of Lassa, because the La Llorona went platinum. And uh, and then The Living Road was mainly, it was three languages, but it, was, it wasn't so worldly. It was more singer-songwriter. And then we kept, she, she requested me back again um, and we'd become incredibly close and she'd stay with me when we were doing media. We just, we just were so connected as two human beings. I mean, many years apart. And then uh, she, she uh, started recording her third album, Lhasa. And um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And then she, she went through various... Um, treatments and they got control of it and uh, and then it metastasized into her liver I think and they and she worked so hard at it and she did everything and and she and and the hair was starting to grow back and she was very proud she'd send me pictures and she said look I'm getting the hair again it's curly and um and then she uh she finished this album that she was so immensely proud of and we booked a date at Trinity St. Paul's 
And oh, and then they'd hired some, uh, Audiogram had hired another company. Denny had left, but he was still very close with Laza. And they'd hired another company here to do her PR, to do the, the, the labels PR. And Lassa was very unhappy with it. And she, she called me one day and she said, I don't know these people. They haven't even reached out to talk to me. And she said, I want you back. And I said, I don't know if you'll get me back because they've, they've done it. But she said, but I want you back. And I said, then it's your fight, Lassa. You know I'm there. I want to be there with you, but I can't go and fight because I'm not hired by them. Mm -hmm. And she got me back. And she said, I don't want to work with these people. I want to work with Jane. And um, so we were working together, and uh, and then we booked Trinity St. Paul's, and then there was another date booked in uh, somewhere else in Ottawa. I forget, maybe Montreal, I forget. And then she went to either Iceland or Finland to do a, to do a festival, and she had a seizure, and they went to the test, and, and it had gone to her brain. Oh. And this was in, like, July, August, and she died on January first, and I and and I wasn't allowed to tell people, and 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 I was charged with getting the obituary ready, the the media release ready that said it, but I was so shattered when I had to do it, and then people were shattered because they didn't know she was dying, and but we had such success, we ha we had such success. And then the band, both bands, and, and she had she had a new band. And Patrick Watson was a huge fan. And um, the Bar Brothers and um, this wonderful cellist named Sarah Paget. Page, and then, then there was a, um, a celebration of life uh, about two weeks later, and I was asked to go down, which was nice. And unfortunately, I gave them all my videotapes because I wanted to make sure they had for the thing but I should have done something but I didn't you know so mm -hmm. they got it all but it, it was it, it's still so painful for me because it was it was 10 years you know it wasn't 10 years on all the time but it was such a condensed time with her right um but that was my the that was probably the the best and the worst you know I can imagine I can't I can't even imagine writing that obituary from, I know it's your job, but to have a well, client that close. It, it was, and, and the, the problem was that, the, that they'd been preparing to do it, for it. Um, and, and apparently, um, Lasso just, she, she oh man, she, uh, I, I sent her a, pa a care package from Toronto and, and she was doing a lot of, eating a lot of, um, of miso. And, and and eating a lot of Japanese food when she felt well enough. So I found her these lovely bowls and chopsticks and sent her down a care package. And she was so thrilled with it. it and that, I mean, Lassa, Lassa had this joy of life. She really did. And um, I, I just remember being so devastated and, and everybody was devastated. And so it made it even harder to to me mm -hmm. because everybody was like oh I can't believe it and everybody was crying and it, you know they, they were crying to me and and it was very hard but she made a lot of impact and made a lot of friends and she there's a new book a guy named Fred, named Fred Goodman I got my copy this week and um, Kerry Duell had sent me a link and he said has this guy been in touch with you 
um, from the U.S. And the book is uh, Why Lhasa Matters, I think it's called, or Why Lhasa Matters, whatever. I haven't had a chance to open it yet. Um, anyway, so Kerry uh, said, you should talk to him. And, and I, I got in touch with him and I said, um, I, I was Lhasa's publicist for the rest of Canada for, for the decade of her career. And, um, and I, I would love to talk to you. And Kerry suggested that you might send me the, the manuscript before it's published. And he said, well, I'm not doing it for anybody, but I will. And then he said, why didn't I know about you? Why didn't I interview? He interviewed other people, like, you know, why? I mean, Nick Jennings has a right because Nick has been around the music scene and been very impactful. But but he couldn't believe that, that he'd missed, that the parents didn't, didn't put it out there or whatever you know I mean that's the way it goes but I, but I had so many stories and I told him some and he said oh I, I can't believe that I didn't know that you know whatever. Well, I presume that you have many clients who you've worked with over many many years that you established this amazing relationship with other than last David time. Wilcox a wonderful relationship with David Wilcox um, he's very very appreciative he's incredibly good to work with he's professional in the extreme uh, I I get a media request. I I he's very very private. Right. We never ever give anybody his phone number or his email. I always am uh, the go between, and he always calls. He never will have anybody call him, and I understand that. You know. Did he play the riverboat? Like, do you go back that far? Yes, he did play the riverboat, but not in my time. I okay. don't think because I was left. I left in seventy. Four, sixty-nine to seventy-four, and I think he played after that. So, I know that you've worked with artists. You also do festivals. You've done. You also, I think you did the publicity for Ontario Forum for a little while. Yes. Like that's. I mean, Ontario Place Forum. The oh, that was magical. I can I, imagine. I like two seasons. So, what? How do you treat that differently? I mean, I, I. That's for those who don't know. Ontario Place Forum had this revolving stage, and they had the greatest bands of all genres the greatest play. the greatest i saw bb king chuck berry i mean i saw a lot of people there and it was you pay the entry fee to ontario to, place to actually ontario place and no charge to the forum yeah and, I know. Then, and they had the most amazing concerts for i don't know how many years but tell me about working on that gig well first of all um in those days uh, media releases were were put onto, and the thing about Ontario Place that because it was because it was um, a corporation with within the the, the province, right. they had their own sizing letter head, so it was it, it wasn't eight and a half by eleven, it wasn't eleven by seventeen, it was longer than eleven uh, eleven by seven, and it was. So we had to make copies, and in those days, I would go down to when I was doing the media releases. I'd go to the um, to the tobacconist store and use their use their Xerox right. copier, and put the put the Ontario Place letterhead in, and then make copies, and then put them in an envelope, and then address the envelope, put the stamp on, and mail them. So what we would do would would do. Um, I would do media releases for, I think I did it kind of like I do Hughes Room in a way, which is I send out the the newsletter 
which has all the dates. And then I would also do standalone media releases for certain artists. I don't think I did a media release for every show. But that, that would have been crazy. Yeah, that would have been crazy. But I think I did a... I might have. I, I don't remember. But um, So I would do that, and I would send them out. And then I also worked with the... Well, worked with the, the National Ballet, because the ballet company... The, the ballet company was the only... The couple of people who refused to have the stage revolve. The ballet company refused because the guys would never know how to get off the stage right. in the middle of a pas de deux or whatever. So um, the, the stage stood still for them. Bill Cosby was the other person who would not have the stage revolve. Um, it's too bad he turned out to be such a jerk, but <laughs> he was fun to work with. Uh, and he imagine. said, uh, I, I, the stage will not revolve, I will revolve. And he was as good as his word. He moved around the, the perimeter constantly. The Toronto Symphony, it was their summer home. The, the National Ballet, it was their summer home. Uh, so all these things. It was the most incredibly diverse, and I think that's why I can handle on, um, Hughes Room, is <laughs> probably because of Ontario Place, right. actually, because it was a great training in, in multi-formatting, um, getting to the right people. And the key to the right people, honestly, is, is the trust that I have, that I have been given by the media that are on my, what I call, key list. And I have probably about 180 media people of all disciplines who have allowed me, have given approval to receive media releases of everything we do. So sometimes they're getting five or six media releases a day. Right. But the key to that is, and I'm, I'm giving our secrets away, but that's okay because that's what you should do except for certain people. Um, <laughs> Those people cannot listen to this. Yeah, the, I'd like to mention this one particular person, but I'll be, I'll be kind to him, um, is to put all the media releases in the body of the email. Never, ever just the attachment. The attachment is pretty. It'll have a picture. Right. But I don't care. The media doesn't care. They know what's going on. And as long as they get it in the body, they're not afraid to click on a link. And we always BCC everybody. Never, ever do we send other people's... Right. Anyway, with, and with David Wilcox, that's exactly what we, what we do. You know, I'll BCC him and I'll, say, and I'll say in a response, I don't know what David's schedule is, but um, I, will, I will ask him and I'll get back to you when I find out. And he's great about it and he'll give me his days and times. And then I'll pick a day and, and I'll give him, I'll, I'll put a two hour window in there rather than say, well, he's available on Tuesday, Wednesday and Friday from two o'clock to five, whatever. I'll never do that. I'll, I'll pick a day and a time. And, and because I don't, want to, I don't want to give too many options. You know, if it's impossible for them, they'll say, oh, damn, I'm on the air. And then I'll go back and I've got room to wiggle. But I don't want to give too many because other, it gets too complicated. And I don't want David hanging around all day in no, case, yeah, you know. Sure. Um, I have to wrap this up. I, I want to first thank you for doing this. It's been a fascinating conversation. Tell I know. If you got rid of some ums, it'd be about five minutes more. My final question. Um, I mean, it's been an amazing journey. I don't. I, you probably don't think about it a lot. But, you know, when you think you've been in the industry for 50 years, and, and I can't even imagine how many shows you've seen and how many incredible shows you've seen. But how do you look back on all this? This whole experience. 
I look back on this as this is really what I was meant to do, but I didn't know that. Um, I, there was a night for me in April at Hughesford. Yes, yeah, I was going to mention and that. And the, the, the people that came out, and, and this was a surprise to me uh, up until about three weeks before, for the record, and I couldn't put a media release out when I when I found out about it because how do you do that? Right. Oh, this is to celebrate me, um, so I, I couldn't do that. But it was this was like a, this was like my life rolled into my fifty years rolled into one night because people came out of the woodwork. Uh, Ross Davies and and his wife Marianne, Marianne, Mary Ellen. I was at Ontario Place with her. Um, Ross Davies was at Chum, and I knew him because of El Combo, and and all these people, and 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 I apparently the the most commonly asked question, according to I think David Farrell, was, um, so how do you fit into Jane's life or something? I don't know. All I know is it was, it was humbling, truthfully, because I and I look at it more as like. I was just the catalyst for a great bunch of people coming together. Mm-hmm. Um, it was amazing. And, and that sort of encapsulates my life. Salim was coming with Honey. Oh, one quick story. Salim Sachadina, when I was at Eastern Sound, Honey, he was married to Farida, and they had a son, and I don't remember the son's name. And Honey was his, uh, his secretary, his everything. And then things didn't go so well with Salim and Frida, and I don't know what, that was after I left. And he and Honey got together, and they have been, they've had this picture book, storybook love. And they have children together and grandchildren. And they were coming, but Salim, who was 83, I think, wasn't feeling so well. They'd bought tickets, but they, they Honey said, it's better we don't come. So, but it, it, it was like everybody, and, and it was the most magical thing. Because I had said for years, and I know I had told Liam uh, this, and he was the one who decided to do it, Liam Russell Tickham. And I had said, at somebody's memorial concert, I had said, I don't want to not be there. I, I don't want to miss the music. <laughs> and I think that was how, why he, he decided to do it. So I feel like I've been very, very blessed. Well, thank you so much for spending this time. You're welcome. I really appreciate it. You're welcome now, of course.